0: Hello, and welcome to the second series of Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In our last series, we heard about addictive apps, aviation on demand, political disruption and the internet, and much more. Don't forget you can catch up with any episodes you miss by searching for FT Tectonic on all the usual podcast platforms. Today, we hear from a scientist with ambitious plans for the future of diagnostic imaging.
1: We can get neurons non-invasively using extremely low-cost manufacturing infrastructure that was put in place to make the components in your smartphones.
0: That's the voice of Mary Lou Jepsen. She led the consumer electronics and virtual reality teams at Google, Facebook and Oculus and invented the $100 laptop before going on to found Open Water. The startup aims to replace bulky and expensive MRI technology with a far more powerful, cost effective device that will eventually be able to read our minds. Mary Lou spoke to the FT's Hannah Kushler in San Francisco.
2: So you've had this incredibly impressive career, but it's not necessarily a conventional path from going for what you were doing in consumer electronics to looking at this very heavy on the, on the neuroscience area. Tell me about that journey for you.
1: Well, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be able to dump my thoughts out and share it with my, share it with my friends. But yes, I became an engineer and really was working very much in this esoteric area of engineering called holography where I was living from fellowship to fellowship, living on $800 a month all through my 20s to do the work that I loved. And then I got pretty sick and I really needed health insurance because I'm an American and it was pre-Obamacare. So I needed a job that paid really well, that had really great health insurance. I started a company and kind of sold out and went flat and went into consumer electronics. But I know a lot about consumer electronics and I've I've now shipped. This is, you know, I've been shipping really on the hairy edge of physics, breakthrough consumer electronics for about 20 years now. And I've still not lost my interest in neuroscience. And so I figured out how to use all of this knowledge I have of consumer electronics in a way to transform medical imaging and beyond
2: And getting sick was also another part of your sort of getting to understand the brain.
1: Oh, right. So I had a brain tumor. I was doing my PhD in device physics at an Ivy League school and I had to drop out because I I was living in a wheelchair. I was sleeping 20 hours a day. My body was full of sores that weren't healing and I I couldn't even remember how to subtract and I didn't think I deserved a PhD in physics. So I filled out the paperwork to drop out and go home and die because nobody could figure out what I had. And then somebody sprung for the cost of an MRI, they found the brain tumor. It took 30 days to have the brain surgery and get better, and then reapply to get back into graduate school because I had dropped out, and they let me in. It turns out, having a brain tumor is a good excuse, and they gave me a second chance. And I finished my PhD in six months, and with a couple other students, raised $4 million to start our first company, making liquid crystal and silicon devices for the first wave of virtual reality and augmented reality and beyond. So tell me about what Open Water is working on now. Right now? I mean, it started really a year ago. I never ever imagined I'd start a startup at age 50. After Google, Sergey Brin Aqua hired my last company. And I thought never again, but I'm doing it because it starts with this idea, basically me in a bathrobe, cup of coffee and a laptop. That's where it starts last August. And I figured out what we're doing, invented the architecture and our approach. I didn't hadn't invented it before I left Facebook, where I was uh, an executive, and got funding, hired the team, built the lab, had the experiments, and now we're just chugging along with trying to figure out what the limits of the physics are. And one of the really exciting things that's happening right now is every time we think we hit a hit a limit, we find out we haven't, and it's. Every week, there's brand new results. And so in the last week, we've actually, with LCDs and cameras, imaged two inches of depth into the brain, the focus of a micron. And you may not know a micron is a millionth of a meter, but the key thing is that's the size of a neuron. So the indication is we can get neurons non-invasively using extremely low cost manufacturing infrastructure that was put in place to make the components in your smartphones. And that's incredibly exciting when you think about an MRI system with much lower, a billion times lower resolution than what I just said, that costs a thousand-fold more and is in an entire room, the most expensive room in the hospital, where you have to lay inside. I mean, talk about big iron, like it's big, Iron, right? Ferromagnetic. Ferro stands for iron. And and if it's a Latin or Greek, ferrous. And transforming that into consumer electronics. And so consumer electronics has become pretty mature. And there's this other thing happening in consumer electronics. Smartphone sales have saturated and a lot of revenues are declining. So if you look in Asia, there's a lot of companies whose valuation is one third what it was two years ago, because they, they need to figure out what's next. And what's next is, I think, shifting the light. Usually, we see visible light. And so shifting it up to the infrared, the near-infrared, the benign near-infrared. That's not like UV that gives you sunburn and cancer. It's just benign near-infrared light. To make all kinds of medical imaging and diagnostic equipment using not off-the-shelf components, but full custom design components that can be put into high-volume manufacturing in the trillion-dollar manufacturing infrastructure that exists today.
2: Yeah, so you can, it's amazingly you can harness that. And so would it be that, that I would have this in my house or is the idea that it's still a hospital-based piece of equipment but it's just so much cheaper and smaller?
1: We're talking about making screens and cameras that line the inside of a ski hat or a bandage. And so, sure, it will be in the hospital, but it can also be in your doctor's office. It can be in the ambulance. It can be in your home if you want to buy one. If, you, if you've had a cancer, every time... That part of your body aches, you wonder, is my tumor growing back? Well, you could find out. Or if you've got clogged arteries, you could see how the diet is doing in unclogging the arteries. Or if you have a brain aneurysm, you can see how that's changing. Or if you want a therapy for, for brain disease, all of these types of things. So, what's the time
2: scale for this? When do you think it could possibly be ready?
1: Well, we're going to do early access partnerships next year, and then we should be able to put a product into production the following year. We may hold back on that because, it's funny, I I just left Facebook and literally at Facebook you can change two lines of code, ship it out to a million people, see how it does, then ship it out to a billion people. But there's this thing that's true in hardware we do hardware and software, but the, the thing that's true, the software you can change, but the hardware component you can't change after you ship it. I know that sounds really obvious, but it changes how you design something, because I've been working in these, with these software giants, really leading a lot of the advanced consumer electronics. And so what we try to do up front is try lots of experiments in parallel to see where the limits of the technology are, and then sort of do, run a dozen different designs, then have a contest. And don't just pick the top one, pick the top three, and then take the best of the other nine and fold that in so that we can jump through multiple generations. Because when we tape out a chip, it's millions of dollars. And we still call it tape out, even though there's no tape. But you design a chip, a silicon chip, or an LCD is also a chip. It's made with silicon as well, with slapped-on liquor crystals on top of it. And we design that, and it's very expensive, to do the mask sets but the opportunity cost for the fab is enormous because they live on razor thin margins and there's really been very little innovation in these factories since the financial crisis and so you sort of have to walk a knife edge to to get it into production and make all of the people that you're working with and all of these companies happy in the process
2: and presumably there's an extra layer when you come to something that's you know a medical device Is that you have regulation and do you have to do the same kind of testings you would in a medical trial?
1: Yeah, we have to get FDA approval. Although I was just talking to somebody who was making the case for some compassionate use cases in the case of patients he has. So we may do that. But what we're doing is, you know, it's very interesting that it may be faster to get to a telepathic system than a medical system because of the lack of regulation around communication with human thought. It just has to pass consumer electronics, which is fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the ethical and legal responsibilities that we have? And one of them is talking with you, even as the technology is nascent and not into a product. Because we're trying to define what it means to be responsible here.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about the telepathic element. How does that even work? Well, you know, How do you get from these medical use cases you were talking about to I can read your thoughts.
1: If I threw you in an MRI machine right now, I could tell you what words you're about to say, what images are in your head, whether you're in love or not, whether you're paying attention or not, what music you're thinking of. Whether I'm in
2: love or not, how do you tell that?
1: By brain scanning you, literally brain scanning you. I'll tell you a story. Five years ago, this group at University of California at Berkeley paid graduate students to lay in MRI machines for hundreds of hours. And they had to watch YouTube videos for hundreds of hours, So it was just like what they were doing in their rooms anyway. But a little bit uncomfortable, but they were getting paid, and they did it. So the computer then took the scan data of those hundreds of hours and then showed the grad students a new image sequence that the computer hadn't seen. The computer didn't know what the new image sequence is, but using the scan data alone of what areas lit up in, in MRI, it computed what it guessed the grad students were looking at, and the result was pretty grainy images of the new image sequence. And if you add that up with another fact that's been shown with image registration, if I think about an image versus see, actually or physically seeing that image, the areas that light up in fMRI are the same. So pretty soon you can imagine an artist or, or somebody that thinks visually being able to dump their visual thoughts directly to the computer so much faster than drawing or painting them or trying to struggle with PowerPoint or whatever. You have an image of a diagram you want to dump out to convey an idea to somebody. You can just instantly dump it out. So great. So you've been very good at sort of illustrating the positive side of this but but
2: you talked about ethics I mean has there been any work on you know how far you should go how you keep anything private in a world where people can read each other's minds
1: there's been enormous work on privacy especially as the world is watched online and and what's been quite surprising is how little people seem to care about their privacy and our notions of privacy are changing all the time of what's acceptable. And so open water has been in dialogue with many different ethics societies. And I think Steve Hyman, the former provost of Harvard, who was the founder of the Neuro the International Neuroethical Society, at their last meeting said the days of an ethics committee sitting behind closed doors deciding what is ethical are over because of these things like our notions of what is appropriate privacy. Are in rapid flux right now. And so it's a dialogue with the public that's necessary. So we make the ski hat. Can the police make you wear the ski hat to read what you're thinking? Can the military? Can your spouse make you wear it? I can't tell you how many men have come up to me saying they don't want their wives to know what they're thinking and just thinking, like, what? You're thinking about sex. But yet, what happens there? Open water has committed our devices will only work consensually only if you want your thoughts exposed and we're putting filters in so you can you can communicate the sex or violent thoughts or the other thoughts or not you can suppress those so we've committed to doing that the thing that keeps me up at night is using the trillion dollar manufacturing infrastructure of asia and what do they say about the sincerest form of flattery i mean yeah imitation how long Will it take for people to emulate our designs? And what do we do to be responsible about that? And is it an international bill of rights as we walk into this? Selling a little or a lot?
2: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial
1: period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Because you could say we don't want to know how the mind works. Leave those 2 billion people with brain disease, with their brain disease, with very little chance of cure. You could say you don't want to amplify in human excellence. You don't care how the brain works. You could say that. But the national academies of almost every developed nation have said of the top five things you can do as a technologist, somewhere on that list for most developed world countries is reverse engineering the brain. But yet we're not talking about what happens when we do achieve that. How can we amplify human excellence and how can we make it only work if we wish it to work? And then, you know, who owns your ideas? I think you do. But if you share them with somebody, like, well, they may they have, have retention rights or, you know, all of these issues. Is there a mother in the world that's taking home her first baby from the hospital who wouldn't, doesn't want to break the baby, right? Like, <laughs> like the baby's crying all the time. You're exhausted. So would you put this ski hat on the baby? Is that ethical? Maybe that's even okay. But when does the ski hat come off? When the kid turns 18? No, it's, it's a huge minefield. I was interested when you said that you want to develop
2: the technology so that you can say, oh, you could filter out sex or violence or whatever. Is that that you would still collect that information and then what was produced doesn't
1: include that? Or is there a way that you could just not collect that information? We prefer not to collect it. I think good crypto is also super important in this. That's an arms race, historically. And so how do you protect the people that are using your system is something that that we're also looking at. So we won't come out with a product until we feel that we've answered those publicly in a way that holds water, so to speak. I mean, we're just walking into it now. But the flip side of it is some people will just let it all hang out and let their brains swirl around with other people's brains and... There's been a big discussion in Silicon Valley in the last week about biases and (laughs) all kinds of things. We're all biased. We're all sexist. We're all racist. I think we know that, and the question is, can we face that in ourselves and make better decisions based on that? But if you're letting all of that out in these biological minds (laughs) that are imperfect, and how can we work on ourselves so that we can come to amplifying opportunity and and excellence and what could we be capable of if we could swirl our minds around with other people know all I know about consumer electronics and optics and neuroscience and I get to know all somebody knows about crypto or whatever you know all of these things if we could just like band match what could we do versus what are the harms I mean I used to watch Star Trek as a kid and there was this character Spock. And he would mind melt with people and Spock wasn't like an emotional guy because he was a Vulcan and uh, they didn't allow emotions or that was the, the, the trope. And he would be just absolutely exhausted after mind melding with somebody and, and just have to like go curl up for three days <laughs> to get better. And I don't, maybe we'll be like that, but it might be quite literally mind opening. Yeah. In what we can see and do.
2: There's so much talk at the moment about the sheer amount of information that we have available to us compared to, you know, even 10 years ago, and now we could have that level more, so we'll have to think about to the
1: extent that we could process it. And can we dump it in? Like, you don't have to read the book, it just gets dumped in, but then you get into free will, like... You know, and and how you could control people. And so, even though it seems possible, we're not going to touch that for a while. I think the first step is really massively reducing the cost of medical imaging, which in the United States alone last year was $50 billion of revenue, MRI scans at $2,700 average scan cost per pop, which is, you know, there's a large discussion about the healthcare costs in the US, and we could keep more people healthy if we could see what was going on in their body in high resolution for low cost. And so this can at scale lower the cost of an MRI scan by a thousandfold and make it more accessible. Tencent, the the Chinese company, did a did a study in developing world clinics, health clinics, and said, you know, to the head of each clinic, if you could wave a magic wand And have any kind of new technology in the world what would it be and why and the number one answer on their survey was a portable mri they could transform the healthcare they could deliver to the community they served if they could have a portable mri because like the first sign of brain tumor in vietnam is coma it's tough and so the very same technology this is the very same physics that enables that also enables us to dump our thoughts. And it it seems inevitable it's coming. The physics is solid and the manufacturing infrastructure is getting prepped for it. And so how do we deal with this responsibly? What do we do That's the question I ask.
2: Yeah, it's a big question. What, you know, why did you create it as a startup rather than, you know, you could have done this within Facebook or within Google? What made you think that a startup was the right way to approach this?
1: Well, Sergey really, really, Sergey Brin, who I worked for at Google, really, really, really didn't want me to do it, even though I pitched this as they were starting Google Acts. And Sergey didn't really want to touch it at the time. For ethical um, reasons? or I think he just wanted other stuff done first. Why do it as a startup? rather than just staying at Facebook and doing it. And I think there were a lot of people that I was talking to about this, Vinod Kosla, Juan Enriquez, Sonny Bates, but like Peter Gabriel, the, the musician and rock star and human rights activist, I saw him backstage at, I think, TED when I was speaking about this at TED, and he kept calling me. He called me every week for six months trying to convince me to leave Facebook to do it as a startup so that I could openly talk about it. For the past five years between Google and Facebook, there's been very few people that had badge access to the laboratories under my supervision. I, I sort of go into these companies, invent something, hire people up that are better than me in each aspect, and then run a, a division and, and bring the thing to ship. I've done that a, a bunch of times. And those facilities that I built, very few people had access to, and I have not been able to publicly talk about the work that I was doing at Facebook at Google, but. You actually, if you anyone's curious, can find out. I've got about 200 patents to my name. About 100 of them, just from Google and Facebook, you can read those patents. We publish in that form what we're doing. But you know, reading patents is a tough slog. If you um, I write them the best way I can, but it's a certain language to use. So yeah, he convinced me to do another startup. I never thought at age 50 I would start a startup again. I was like done with it, and I was living the cushy life, really big salary, stock options. I mean, Facebook stock, have you seen it? It's incredible. But, you know, I don't need money anymore. Like, you get to a certain point, I, I maybe if I had if I spent a lot of money, I might, but I I don't spend that much money. I mean, I like a nice glass of wine. That's about it. And I just realized, you know, what do you want to do? This is it. This is the big opportunity to try to transform something. And a startup seems like the right structure for it because of the ethical and legal issues. And Facebook has announced they're doing a different type of project on it, and and there's an ethics board, and they're, again, talking about it before they're showing demos, I think, to try to get in front of it. Elon Musk is talking about an effort that he's working on. And I think people are trying to, the ones that are announcing early seem to be, doing it for that, the spirit of that reason as well.
2: And how does what Elon Musk's talking about compare to what you're doing?
1: What he's talked about is something called neural lace, which was uh, in a science fiction novel some years back. And the idea there is silicon particles pulsing through your arteries and the blood structures to be able to read neural states. So his system requires elective brain surgery, which I think is a tough sell having had brain surgery. And the other part about it that I find really difficult is in a world where cardiovascular disease is a number one killer for clogged arteries, you're putting solid material in arteries. I think that will take some time to be proven safe. And then you wonder, Elon's a smart guy. What's he doing? And I actually have, I see him around. I haven't actually asked him because... We've been talking about other stuff. But I think he wants to go to other planets light years away. The human body won't last long enough. And I think he's basically talking about going full cyborg. I haven't heard him say that, but I think that that's the thought process. It's much further along, much further out. And to be able to go, I mean, there's all these exoplanets that probably support life. It's a big discovery. But how do we get some form of humanoid, humanoid cyborg out there. It's going to, at light years away, you have to think about the fragility of the biological form. And so that might be what he's thinking. I don't know.
2: So you're thinking about trying to um, read our minds so we can share our thoughts and uh, push to our full potential, but he's thinking full cyborg.
1: I don't know. I mean, I hope that the reason he announced was to try to get in front of the ethics as well and start to talk about it before it exists so that it can inform the engineering decisions. And I think, you know, Facebook coming out about it was really good. There's a couple others. My bigger concern is the efforts that aren't announced and what are they doing to be responsible and how can the, the efforts that are announced help inform that. And of course, there's also all of these brain initiatives and there's many decades of pioneering work in academia that we all stand on the shoulders of to enable us to be at this moment of commercialization and so I think it's a dialogue with with that and then people on the ethics side and it's got to be international I mean we're sitting here in you know sunny-ish California but how does this play in different countries and It's a big deal.
2: And so, to what extent do you feel like you have a responsibility to play this sort of ambassadorial role in bringing people together on this issue around the world?
1: I think Open Water has a responsibility. I may not be the best person. So, there's, you know, we're in dialogue with lots of different groups right now. But, you know, ultimately, you know, do I hire a chief ethical officer? Is that too much, you know, or is it somebody that actually gets a discussion going? But then there's also, The misuse of of this technology or the incredible use of this technology, they're, they're both there, and how do we have that dialogue to make sure that we create products that we can stand behind? The main thing that I come up with is the reverse engineering issue, and while we intend to define what it means to be responsible and be responsible with our products, the reverse engineering that's common in the consumer electronics world means that we have this responsibility to address the reverse engineering and how to make the product still stand up to how we define what it means to be responsible. And I'm being very clear, like we haven't defined it yet. We're trying to. Well, I think
2: there are lots of very big, very interesting and important questions that you're asking. And thank you so much for coming here to
1: talk to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.
0: We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonicft.com. At this episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.